morning. Go ahead and grab a chair, make yourselves comfortable. My name is Luke. There's a few of you I haven't met yet. Um, I'm the lead pastor here, one of the pastors at Legacy. It's good to see you. Um, hey, if you have a Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians 8, and that is going or an app, whatever you use. Um, that's going to be the passage that shows us Christ more clearly today, um, shows us who we are uh, more clearly today, I guess you could say that. Raise your hand while you're flipping there. This is me stalling. Raise your hand if you feel like you've ever been re-gifted before. Re-gifted. Yeah? yeah? You keep them up. Keep them up. Get those arms up. Oh my, that's more than I thought. Raise your hand or keep your hand up, right? If you've ever seen someone re-gift somebody. Okay, more, yeah, more hands. It's typical. Keep your hands up if you've re-gifted somebody. Oh my gosh, this is horrible. I expected all the arms to go down. Well, at least we have an honest church, okay? That's funny, yeah. Well, it's interesting how we handle gifts. As mankind in general, we're not very good at giving gifts, but we're definitely bad at receiving gifts. We are bad gift getters. I mean, re-gift, it's only been something that's been a word or a thing probably for the last two decades or so, if we really look into it. I think probably more peculiar than that, is receiving exorbitant gifts or abundant gifts. Tell me if I'm wrong in this. Doesn't it feel weird whenever you give someone a gift and they give you a gift that's worth like 10 times more than what you just gave them? Don't you feel that little thing inside, you know? Like you really picked those books out and you thought those books would be a perfect gift and then they hand you an iPad, right? And you're like, oh, I didn't know. What what, what are you thinking in your mind? I didn't know it was one of those kinds of gifts, right? I didn't know it was like that. I thought we were like under $25. You you did something. Isn't there something in you that wants to go out and immediately get something? You know you can't do that because it just makes it worse. But don't you want to give a gift to show, hey, you gave me something good, but I'm going to give you something good to prove that I'm worth what you gave me. It's even Stevens, right? I give you a little bit, you give me a little bit back. I'm worth it because of what I gave you. It's interesting how we do that. We feel uncomfortable getting extravagant gifts. We don't like it. It's something we struggle with. And if this is you, this is because this is mankind. All of us are like this. Mankind struggles getting good gifts. We're bad gift getters. I'll just say it again that way. This is how we are with salvation. Think about it. God gives us this benevolent gift very generous, we don't deserve it, and then what do we do except for set out on a lifetime attempt to show God that we are worth the gift? Here, God, look what I'm doing. I'm going to show up this many times. I'm going to write this many checks. I'm going to preach the gospel to this many poor people. I'm going to do whatever it takes to show you that, yes, it was a good gift that you gave me, but look, I'm earning it, right? I know you gave me an iPad, and I only, you know, I'm worth a couple books, but I'm going to show you over a lifetime, I can bring an iPad to you. I can give you an extravagant gift as well. It's my life. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, he says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Remember, we hit this last week. By grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may what? So that no one may boast. Not a result of work, so that no one can say I'm worth it. So no one can say, thanks for the extravagant gift, but I'm giving you one too, so we're cool, right? We're cool. This is why Paul wrote that. We don't take spiritual gifts well either. You know, we've been going through this series on spiritual gifts, and 
I think this is why Paul starts off in 1 Corinthians saying, hey, brothers, concerning spiritual gifts, I I don't want you to be uninformed. Why does he say that? Because we abuse the things we're uninformed about. The things that we don't understand, the things that we're kind of frustrated or maybe a little mystical with, we, we abuse those things. We take those things and we mishandle them. And I think one common denominator I see is we've gone through the several weeks of spiritual gifts. We didn't hit all 22, but we hit up really close to it. We tried to spend some time on each one. And the one thing I notice is that God gives us good gifts and we abuse them. We abuse them. That's a common denominator. But here's the truth for us. God knew that we were going to abuse them before he gave them. He knew it. This is who we are. I bump into people sometimes that will say something like, Luke, I do believe that God gives spiritual gifts, but not those gifts, because he wouldn't give gifts like that if he knew that this is what we were going to do with them. Well, friend, it's, that's exactly what he did. He, he know, that's just who we are. We're always abusing good gifts. What does he do? He gives us creation. As a gift, what do we do? We abuse it. He gives us a savior king, a lover of our souls. He brings his own treasure to us, to live among us, to be among us. And what do we do? We abuse him. Because of the crucifixion and the empty tomb, what we have is we have a community of believers as a gift. Right? We're a gift to each other. What do we do? We abuse each other. We're abusers. And all of the time, he knows ahead of time that we will abuse the gifts that he brings us. So, Today, today is no different. We're going to hit our last few gifts. This is our last week in the spiritual gifts. Um, We start Jonah, the book, next week. Um, But these gifts today, we have a great capacity to abuse them as well. And the thing is, it's a little bit different today because we don't abuse these gifts because um, they've hurt us in the past. We don't abuse them because they look weird. We don't abuse them because they're, they're frustrating or confusing. We abuse these gifts specifically because we're selfish, because we're selfish people, right? I'll explain what I'm talking about. Look at Romans 12 up on the screen. If you have your, if, listen, if you have your Bible open to 2 Corinthians 8, keep it there, all right? Don't flip away from that because that is the, the text that really drives the bus today. So some of these will be up on the screen. Romans 12, Paul says this, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, and we're going to talk about that today, The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, and we're going to talk about that one today as well, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, now you are the body of Christ, remember we hit this last week, and individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, then prophets, then teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, Helping, administrating, we're going to talk about that today. And various kinds of tongues. We're going to talk about some gifts that have tremendous overlap today. Helping and serving, they're virtually the same thing. Administrating, contributing, these all heavily overlap. These are gifts that I have always called myself um, the back of house gifts. All right? Now, that's not what scholars call it. I've never even heard anyone else call it this. Um, but I've been in the, in the, the industry, of, just the restaurant industry, I guess, long enough to know that there's a difference between the front of house and the back of house. When you walk into the front of house, you see host, hostess, servers, you see bussers. That's the personnel you see, right? But the whole environment, the front of house of a restaurant, is made so that you experience or have a better experience with your meal. It's supposed to enhance your time there. The smells, the, the, just the sight, the decoration, 
um, the smile on the face of the host when you walk in, the wit and the charm of the server who comes just at the right times, right? All of this is meant to just get you to relax and enjoy the whole experience. But past those swinging stainless steel doors, you have the back of house, and it's a very different environment back there if you've ever been in this industry, right? Overhead lighting is harsh. It's hot back there. Everyone's screaming at each other. They may or may not have washed their clothes. You have cooks. You have expediters. You have back of house managers. And their whole goal is to get the food on the plate in the right proportions at the right time to send out the door where everyone else is smiling, right? Without that back of house, that restaurant's never going to be attended. No one's ever going to go back if that back of house fails. Now, these gifts that we're talking about today, they're a little bit more back of house. Like right now, you're you're seeing teaching. You'll see a little bit of preaching later on from this role. You've seen musical talent. You've seen some things that are kind of in your face. But it is the serving, the helping, the administrating, the contributing. That is what makes a church healthy and move down the field. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Let's look at serving, helping, just as an example. Now, some people, by God's grace, are gifted to help and to serve like Jesus did in a way that points to Jesus and looks like Jesus. The thing is, is we're all supposed to pretend we have this gift. (laughs) We've talked about over the last several weeks that God will call us to work in roles and exercise things that we're not necessarily called to do, like lead, evangelize, teach, encourage, right? This is one of those. We're all called to serve. Big picture, this is what Jesus did. Think about it. I don't even have to preach that. We all know that. Lost people out in the city right now that are sleeping in, they know this. Jesus came, he said, not to be served, but to serve and to be a ransom for many. I mean, it was one of his primary roles as he walked around. And the thing is, is the beauty of this is, is Jesus was empowered by the same Holy Spirit to serve. Jesus served and helped in great magnitude by the power of the Holy Spirit. Some of you are gifted to help and to serve. This is the person, and I'm going to describe what you might look like, that always volunteers for stuff. You might wait three seconds to see if anyone else is going to volunteer, but you know you're going to volunteer. You might show up a little bit early. You might be the first car in the parking lot. And when you're there, you don't like a big deal being made of the fact that you're serving, right? You don't make a big deal about it. You might actually stay a little bit longer, and you're totally cool with that, right? You enjoy the back of the house. You like that type of activity. It doesn't bother you. This is the person that does not just enjoy working and ticking things off a list, but they actually enjoy more empowering people to excel as well. They like coming aside and empowering others to help and serve in a way that looks like Jesus. This is the person that has a hard time saying no. It's a struggle for you, right? There are not a lot of blank spots on your calendar, especially if you have a pickup, right? If you have a person that is gifted with helps or service and they own a pickup, (laughs) every Saturday is taken forever or until they sell the pickup, right? This is the person that derives a lot of value out of serving with people communally, right? So what I mean is, is if you have this gift of serving and helping, you might really enjoy people around a dinner table. You might really enjoy people on a camping trip or something like that, but serving, setting up, tearing down, reaching the homeless, being in the laundromat, doing, pushing mission, doing something, that, that is high value time for you. You truly enjoy those moments the sweating it out, the pushing the plow. That's something that's highly, highly a premium in your life. 
In the Bible, we see some really, really cool expressions of this gift. I've picked one. In Acts 6, this is a picture of the very, very early church, and it says this. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint. Now, you have to stop there. Because if you, if you grow as a church, you're going to get complaints. Because administration, in this case, administration dropped. There's an admin fail. People weren't taken care of, right? It's just a service flop. But that's what happens when people grow. That's what happens when families grow, right? When they were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Very key. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the what? Full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Okay. What's going on right here is the church is exploding, it's expanding, and of course people aren't getting served. Administration is dropping, contribution is dropping, things are starting to happen. So these disciples, it's not like they're saying, because this is what we pick up when we read it, it's not like they're saying, you know what, that's too junior varsity for us, that's little league. We need to get some people that can take care of the menial things so we could do like the super, super, super important things. It's not what they were saying. Peter and these guys were saying, we're not gifted for this. <laughs> we're not gifted for helps and service, and we're, doing, we're just monkeying this up, and people are, are feeling the result of it. People aren't being served. We need people who have a fullness of the Spirit, people who are gifted to help and serve, people who would be good at this so that we could retreat away from this one immediate role and do what we are called to do. It's not so that they could just get away from the hard stuff and do the fun stuff, which is what we read sometimes. The reason they stepped away is because they weren't doing a very good job and they needed people who were gifted by God's Holy Spirit that could do a good job. All right. That's what's important to see in this whole thing. Listen, if you have a gift for serving, if this is you, we could really use your help as a church. Every gift we've talked about how we could use your help here immediately now. Right? And I know what you're automatically thinking. You're thinking, oh, here he goes. He's going to make another pitch for set up and tear down. Right? He needs more muscle up here. And we do. Or, hey, here's this pitch. We need more volunteers in the children's ministry. And we do. But listen, we don't need any more people that will come and just check off a list. Right? We'll be fine there. We don't need people that are just showing up just to do something. We need people that can help us create a culture. It is contagious when you are serving and helping alongside people that are full of the Holy Ghost to do that very same thing. That's contagious. Whenever you see someone look like Jesus when they serve, whenever you see someone smell like Jesus whenever they help, it's contagious and it creates a culture. We have the ops ministry up here, which does things like set up the curtains. There's someone out there right now running security on the area. We need help with that for sure. But we've always, from the very get-go, wanted that to develop into a culture where men were just clawing over themselves to get into that thing, right? That doesn't happen unless you have people with that gift of helps and service involved in that, excited to be there, early, enjoying it, right? Same thing with children's ministry. Listen, we don't want your kids walking away going, well, I guess it was good, but you could kind of tell that they didn't want to be there, right? We want kids coming home and parents saying, how was it today? It was good. I love it when so-and-so is there. They're always happy and they always are excited to teach me, 
right? We need people with the gift of service and helps to create a culture. Not to fill out a calendar, to create a culture, right? So if you have this gift, yes, we need your help. We need your help in mission. Listen, you think that you can tell the difference when someone's excited to serve and help you? What do you think about the lost city? You know? When I go to the laundromat, and I don't have this gift, by the way. I don't feel like I have a gift of helps and service. I've seen people that do have it, and so I know what it looks like. But when I am at the laundromat, and I'm handing out quarters, and I'm talking to people, I'm drinking coffee, I can tell, I can tell the look on their face changing depending on how the look on my face. If if I'm excited to be there, and I'm, I'm just engaging them, and tell me what your week is like. Don't hold back any of the details. Let me hear it all. You know, whenever I'm having that moment, they're excited to share their life with me. But whenever I'm on the iPad, just like, well, whatever, quarters are right there, coffee's right there, they're not going to share their life with me. We need people who are gifted so that our mission makes sense, so that communities on mission make sense, and it's a little bit more than just a mantra on a website. That's what we need, right? The reason that we struggle with this gift and therefore abuse it, whether we're called or not, because remember, we're all supposed to help and serve, whether we're called, just by God's grace, some of us stand out. But the reason all of us struggle with this is because the price tag is really high. It costs us something. It costs us our time and it costs us our comfort. That's the price tag for serving, right? We struggle with this because we're selfish with our time. We're selfish with these things. We, listen, we want to own our time. And serving messes that up. Serving screws up our little thing because serving means you might show up a little bit earlier than you would ever want to show up. And it means you might be doing some things that just don't entertain you, right? It means me staying longer than I want to stay. It's tough. It costs me. And we all struggle with this. Again, I struggle with this, right? I have a pickup. I inherited it from my dad when he passed away. I don't want to get the bed liner dirty. (laughs) It's all nice and clean. I don't want dirt in there. I don't want your couch messing it up, scratching it all up. You know what I'm saying? So I understand. It's a struggle with all of us, but we're all called to work in this. And by God's grace, according to his benevolence, some of us really stand out and look like Jesus when we do it. Right? It's an awesome gift. This gift really points to Christ. One way in which we can serve is the gift of administration. Right? So I'm thinking helping and serving is probably a pretty big umbrella gift. And you have some minor ones that fit under it. Not minor, but ones that kind of overlap. I'll say it that way. And administration is one. Some of you call it the gift of nerd, right? And you're okay with that. I'm okay with that. I do have this gift. I will say that. This is the person that feels called to bring order to chaos. They see things in disarray and disorder, and they bring progression and grouping to it, right? This is why this person is very uncomfortable being in sloppy settings, if they're in settings where things are kind of in disorder or disarray, it just makes them feel a little, ugh. This is a person that's able to bring order and chaos to things pretty naturally, effortlessly, right? This might be you if you've got great structure, great structure, and everything at home runs like a machine. Finances, highly structured, well-oiled machine, right? Household, everything. All your jars have cute little labels on it. All the books are where they go. If you have a library, those books just aren't randomly up there, are they? Administrative person. There's a purpose to where those books are at. This is a great gift. This is the person that gets their tank filled by things like to-do lists, tasks, 
right? Organizational charts, it gets you going. Some of you are excited right now. I just said the word. Infographics, spreadsheets, highlighters, sticky notes. This is the, I got a woo. I got a woo straight up. This is the person that loves staff meetings, right? They don't bother you. I like staff meetings. I go all day, staff meetings, right? We have staff meetings as a church. We just started them several months ago. We haven't really had anything that would resemble a staff until recently, so now we have them. And it's interesting because now I get to see these personalities start to slam into each other, right? We've got Rebecca there. Rebecca is our church administrator. She does a fantastic job. She's our administrator because she's gifted there, right? She's finishing my thoughts. I say it, it's already typed in, and she's already added some structure to it to carry it even further, right? It's nice. Rebecca sits next to Wes, right? And you laugh because you know. You laugh because you know, right? Wes is one of the most talented men I've ever met in my life. He has so many gifts, it's just nauseating. Administration was just pulled right out of all that sea of gifts, right? Wes will do well if he marries someone administrative, and if he gets in a church planting team full of administrators, he'll do, he'll do well, right? He comes into a staff meeting. He may or may not have something to take notes on. He's digging sleep out of his eyes because he just got up, you know? <laughs> and so while we talk like things like budgets or children's ministry, Rebecca's excited. Wes is tapping SOS on the table, and he's hoping and praying someone pulls a fire alarm so he can get out of there. It's totally different. Now I'm exaggerating because he, be, he can't be administrative. It's just not a gift to him, right? So maybe some of you know this just as I'm talking about this. You can see that this is you. This is the person that can't figure out why no one around them is not concerned that we did not start at 1030 straight up, right? It's 1032 and 30 seconds, and there's no one playing the guitar up there. And I wonder if someone knows that. I'm probably going to have to go tell somebody, right? This might be you. We have some really cool examples of this in the Bible as well. Joseph would be one. You could look back in Genesis. Um, we're not going to teach this because it spans way too many chapters. But just to get to the punch, Joseph was a person that was such a high administrator when he was in prison um, that by God's grace, he was escalated to where he was at the right hand of Pharaoh. Now, God gave Joseph the dream, albeit... He was given the kind of the, the, the answer to the test, and he knew that a famine was coming in seven years. But Joseph employed structure and administration to where he was able to tax and bring in goods and store them over a seven-year period so that when the famine came, he could disperse of those same goods, but not for free, right? He was taking payment for the food. So when the whole thing was done after 14 years, Pharaoh made out like a rich man, and, and it, famine didn't crush a nation beautiful administration it's a beautiful gift of administration if this is you we could really use your help we could really use your help because as a church grows in complexity administration is one of the first things to go we just saw that in the church of acts right it explodes up into the thousands and people are already getting forgotten about anytime you have ministries that serve the church or serve the city and it requires names and numbers and lists and calendars and protocols. You need, I mean, just telling you order becomes a preeminent value because chaos and entropy are all over the place. Help administrating things. It's something that's very, 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 very important to us right now. Some of you have already been thinking about this. 
Some of you are very gifted in this way, and that's why when you walk around, whether it's uh, something like Sunday morning or maybe when you're on mission or when you're in a community, you start picking up things and you start saying things to yourself or your spouse or your friends like, if they just change this one little thing, I mean, it would get rid of all that redundancy. Or if they just added this structure, I think it would really help them. You start thinking like that. Now, I think the real reason you don't step out and do something like that and help is because not, not, not the time it will cost you so much, but a little bit of the talent and the comfort. Because let me just say, as an administrator, I understand. We set up our nice, neat boxes and rows and categories and spreadsheets, and we're scared that people won't honor them and they'll mess it all up. And we don't like that. We don't like being the bearers of bad news and, and bringing uh, just accountability to everybody. We don't like the feeling of people feeling hemmed in, but that's what administration does, right? For years I did this in the church world where I would be one of the primary administrators and I'd come up with the cute protocol and the vision statement and the calendar and the charts and the bar graphs and everything, and, and I, it, I just felt like people wouldn't honor it. Like I was around a bunch of wild animals that shed their hair and pooped all over it, you know? I'm like, what, what is, but that's the thing it is with, if you're an administrator, you have to know people are not going to honor your rules. They're not going to follow your call lists. They won't RSVP, but they'll show up anyway. You have to know that this is going to happen to you if you're an administrator. It's the talent that it costs us. Administration brings accountability. People don't like accountability. Administration inevitably brings accountability, and people don't like that. Think about it. You can't put that on the floor. Well, why not? Because we have a clothes hamper upstairs, and that's where it goes. The dirty clothes go in that up there, right? You can't set that over there. Why? Because there's a place for that. I want to do this. Can I do this today? You can't do that. Why? Because we have something on the calendar for that time. What you want to do is next week on the calendar, right? It brings accountability. We don't get to do what we want all the time. We don't get to live this spontaneous life. We're hemmed in. We're structured. And administrators hate making people feel like that, right? That's part of the reason that you don't do anything as an administrator. Another thing we can do is we serve each other and help is in the area of contributing. This is the person, the gift of contribution or giving is the person that is an aggressive investor of God's money. And it doesn't matter if you're wealthy or not, by the way. This whole weird thing where only wealthy people can have the gift of giving and contribution is just, it's, it's a fail. It's not even biblical. We're going to talk about that in a minute. This person finds great exhilaration and excitement in giving. Their radar is usually on high when it comes to the needs of other people, right? My wife has this gift. I don't have this gift either. Um, but their radar is very high whenever they see the desperate need of others and the plight of others, not just locally, but even extra locally. They're the ones that pick up on the news of how the church is doing and how people are doing overseas, right? There's a person in this church, I'm not going to say their name, they'd be embarrassed, but recently they came up and they said, hey, I've been saving up a lot of money just to give to overseas missions. I just don't really know where to give. Do you know of any churches that are in plight and in need that are overseas that I could give this money to? Are you serious? Like, where did you come from? Where do we get more of you? Yes, as a matter of fact, there, there is. It's an amazing gift a beautiful gift, the gift of contribution. This person is always looking for opportunities 
to give. And when money does come into their storehouse, they don't treat it as an owner. They treat it as a manager because they understand it doesn't belong to them and therefore it doesn't have this big grip on their heart. They end up becoming very good, solid, joyful, exuberant, consistent contributors to the church, givers to the church, here and at large. Now this is something we're all called to do. Let me just remind you. We're all called to contribute our time, talent, and treasure Some, by God's grace, are gifted to do it. They look like Jesus when they do it, and they point to Jesus when they do it. It's a very beautiful gift. We have some biblical examples of this as well. One is the poor widow, right? She gives everything she has to live on. This is what Jesus says. I don't think it's on the screen. He says, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. See, they even have an offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. None of you have done that. None of us in this room have put everything we've ever had to live on. It's an amazing gift. She didn't do that because she's like, well, I'm poor, so whatever. What's the last penny? Here you go. It wasn't like that. It was everything she had to live on. It's a deep gift empowered by the Holy Spirit to contribute. Barnabas did the same thing. Doesn't the Bible say in Acts 4 that he went to go sell off a big chunk of land and then he laid the money at the apostles' feet? I've heard pastors say that, well, he was wealthy, and he was. Most likely he was wealthy. He was wealthy. It's like selling one of your 10 cars. No, wrong, friend. That's like flushing your 401k. That's like flushing your retirement when you sell off land in the ancient Mediterranean. And he did all that, and he took the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. So the wealthy, like Barnabas, can do it, and then the impoverished can do it as well right? It's a beautiful gift. We struggle in this gifting as well as a church at large. We struggle in this gifting. And it's because we're selfish with our treasures. We struggle whether we're gifted here or not, right? We hoard our treasure because it is the food that our comfort and our security need. We have these idols and they demand food. We pay that food with dollars. That's how it works. Let me explain. Jesus should be the source of our comfort. We'll say comfort. Start with that. He should be the source of your comfort. What does that mean, Luke? It means that Jesus worked and he travailed and he walked perfectly knowing that you couldn't so that you could rest. You're in a, if you're a Christian, you were living in a Sabbath time because Jesus did all of the work that brings comfort to you. You should be comfortable knowing that he's got a place prepared for you, that he will always take care of you, that he's uh, always aware of your situation, more aware than you are of your situation, and he loves you deeply. You should have comfort that comes from the gospel. But whenever you can't center your comfort on the gospel, it requires dollars. You have to have dollars. It's the only other food source for it. That's what the idol requires. Security the same. Christ is our security in the gospel. What does that mean? It means that what Jesus did was so important that nothing can shake the anchor of grace in your life. It doesn't matter what happens to you. It doesn't matter what smacks you in the face, what cancer comes, what car accident comes, what job loss comes. It has no bearing. No matter what hits you in the face, you are firmly secure. You are secure as you could ever be in the war zone. I mean, nothing can hurt you. But if you cannot base your security on what Christ has done in God's gospel, you have to use dollars. Dollars is the only way to get that to happen. And these idols, they're good liars. They oversell it, don't they? They never deliver. 
but they always oversell. And they say, you must give me your treasure. You must feed me your treasure, and I will give you comfort, and I will give you security. And this is why it's tough for us. Paul knew this. And Paul talked to a people just like you and me in 2 Corinthians, a people who struggled with time, talent, treasure, people who struggled with comfort, security, image, right? So if we zoom out a little bit, I want to look at this passage that hopefully you still have your finger in, 2 Corinthians 8. Let's look back at that passage. It will be on the screen. This is Paul talking to the church of Corinth. Just so you know, this is a church that he's about to collect an offering from. They had already set up to collect this offering, but you could tell there had been some static between Paul and the church, which we know from 1 Corinthians, and there was a letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians, right? There's some static there, and so for some reason, the offering never got collected. Titus is there to take care of that now. So he's writing this, and he says, We want you to know, brothers, verse 1, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So now he's talking about an example church. Here's another church. I'm going to show you. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly. That's an amazing, that's an amazing phrase right there, isn't it? I can't get my mind around that. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Okay? But as you excel in everything, and they were a church that was a very gifted church, in faith, speech, knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. Now, I was just talking to a family about this this morning. Um, we understand as a church in holistic contribution, right? What that means is, is we don't just see treasure. We see time, talent, and treasure, right? We punt the ball a little further. We don't think it's because there's a lot of people that will read this and say this is a financial passage, right? And they'll write checks. They'll write big checks consistently with smiles on their face, and they will still miss this passage. They'll still miss it because they're hoarding their time and they're hoarding their talent, and apparently those have more value than the checks they're writing because we always hold back what has the most value to us, right? We see holistic contribution as being our time, talent, and treasure. All of those have big value to them, not just our treasure. So I need to say that going up in front of this. Paul, Paul is rehabilitating their understanding of the gospel. He's rehabbing them of sorts. Right? He was talking to them about their motivations behind giving. We, we truly need that talk too. Not just in our finances. Not just what motivates you to give your money, but what motivates you to give your time to the city, to each other, what motivates you to give your talents to make the church healthier, what motivates you to give anything, to contribute at all. We need the same thing. This is interesting because they were in a severe test of affliction and extreme poverty. So how on earth could they do this? How could they afford this abundant offering? And he says in verse 5, they gave their lives to the Lord, and then, by God's grace, they gave their lives to the church. They gave their lives to the Lord, and then they gave their lives 
to the church. Listen, when salvation reaches us and radically revolutionizes our hearts, it changes our posture towards what is ownership and what is stewardship. See, before Christ, I thought I owned everything I had. I did. If you took something from me, it's because I owned it and it offended me, right? That's how we are as a culture. We own everything we have. When Jesus wrecked me, he showed me that I didn't own anything. I was managing what he owned, right? Instead of me trying to get God to manage what I owned, I'm managing what God owns. He owns everything. He owns my time, my health. Everything I have is given by his hand, and I'm a steward, a good manager or a poor one, of what he has given me. And that means my time, it means my talent, and that does mean my treasure. And this is a struggle for us. This is a struggle for us. And this is why we have a hard time contributing. And when we do contribute, we want to make sure that God is going to contribute back to us. Right? We don't mind giving as long as God gives back and we are taken care of. And this isn't new. This is as old as the earth. Ancient civilizations, and we've talked about this in the past when we've studied through other books, and we're going to hit it again in Jonah. But in ancient civilizations, if someone were to maybe travel across an ocean or start a new business, they would go and they would give an offering to a god, little g, to placate their hatred and to make them happy so that it will go well with them. I'm going to give you this little burnt offering or fruit or whatever. I don't even know what they look like. But we're going to give you this offering, and maybe you'll smile upon us as we sail across the seas to the god of the sea. Or, or something over for, I don't know, whatever patron saint it was for the opening of businesses or we're going to take sheep across a pasture or whatever they would try to make the angry gods happy with them i give you a little bit and you give me a little bit the interesting thing is is people don't change we still do it today in christian churches but this is the thing god cannot be increased think about this we cannot increase god what can you give him that makes him bigger what can you do to make him more glorious, more wealthy? There's no tit for tat. There's no back and forth with God. This is the way we are sometimes, though. I've been thinking about the two major ways in which we give to the church. One is by guilt and the other is by greed. Some of us, we give to the church because we feel guilty for having something. You know, we, we drove here in a car that had air conditioning. And there are starving kids in the nation of Chad right? And you can see all their ribs, and there's always flies around their head, and they're always playing with trash, and it, sometimes it's the pastor's job. You know, they'll stand up, and they'll show you pictures, and then they'll make you feel really bad, and pretty much manipulate an offering out of you, you know? That's not an act of worship. That's an act of obligation. It's by peer pressure that you are giving. That's guilt, right? I, I, I was talking with a family this morning. That's the single reason that we stop passing the plate, we, we did it for a little while. Some of you have wondered why we don't do this, by the way. We did it for a little while. We passed the plate back and forth. We tried it at Cedar Bluff Middle School. You know what we noticed? Interestingly enough, we noticed a giant uptick in the giving, right? And we noticed it stayed there. And then when we took it away, it dropped again. And it wasn't because people finally knew where to give their money. We always talk about where you can put the offering. There are boxes everywhere, labeled clearly. It's because of what you know. It's that plate pressure. You stand there, right? You're singing, oh. And then the plate comes down the aisle, and you see things going in the plate, right? You see an envelope here. You don't look. It's just peripheral, of course. But you see a 20 going in, and you're already thinking, should I give? I didn't plan on giving today. I got to give today. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the one that grabs the plate and hands it without putting something in there, because then I'll feel like that person, right? 
And so you work it all out in your mind. And then as soon as you pass it without putting something in, you have this urge to tell everyone around you that you give on PayPal. It's okay. You're cool. You're not a jerk. You know? There is that pressure to give. And we decided as a church, we'd rather develop a culture that was not giving of their finances, their time, or their talents because of obligation. We did not want to abuse grace, so we just got rid of it, right? Not to say that we won't bring it back someday, but if we do, we'll have to do something differently because we cannot have that culture. Guilt. Greed is another one. Anyone ever hear the phrase, you cannot outgive God? Right? I agree with the phrase. Most of the people, and when I say most, I mean 99% of the people that say that, they say it for a very, very not good reason. A lot of times I've heard that growing up, almost exclusively. You cannot outgive God means that go ahead and give as much as you want. Give recklessly and dangerously, and God will always give you back. God will give you back more than what you've given him, right? So what it does, what I don't like about that is it makes it fixated on us again and what we will get from God, right? Which becomes a self-investment with a Christian fish stamped on it. Gag. But that's what it becomes. When we give offerings, it should not be a down payment on what we hope God brings back to us. It should be an echo and a response to what he's already given us. Listen, I agree with the statement. You cannot outgive God. It's because he's already given his son, friends. You cannot upstage a virgin birth. You cannot outdo a perfect life lived, a bloody cross and an empty tomb. You cannot outdo those things. We cannot straight up outgive God. But we handle this wrong. Guilt, greed. So how did they do it? How did this impoverished church underneath this heavy yoke of affliction, how did they afford to beg for an opportunity to give everything they had? It says this in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see how we did that? You see the gospel in this? It's gospel-saturated contributions. It's gospel-saturated giving. When we, what, what we give of our time, what we give of our talent, what we give of our treasure, it tells of our salvation. It's a big tell of our salvation. Jesus can have your money and not your hearts, but friends, he cannot have your hearts and not your money. God can have your time and not your heart, but he cannot have your heart and not your time. And the same thing goes with your treasure. Right? Some of you you have not grown as a Christian. And it's because you simply cannot trust God as an owner and yourself as a manager. You can only trust yourself as an owner and God as your manager. Right? That's how it is. Always making up excuses. I'll give time whenever the time frees itself up. I'll give money whenever Junior's through this or the sickness is gone or my job gives me a promotion. I'll volunteer for this whenever, I don't know, whenever I feel like you're always making up excuses. But if you just really get down to it, the reason you steal from God, because that's what it is, it's theft, you don't own it. The reason you steal from God, friend, is because you don't trust him as owner. The gospel's just not that good to you. It's not, it's not enticing you, Right? D.A. Carson says, and I agree, when you stand next to the cross, it's really hard to be selfish. Think about that statement. Let it stick. 
When you stand next to the cross, it's really hard to be selfish. It is the people that have a deep, profound understanding of what God has done have no problem being generous with anything and everything, right? It becomes the people who are enamored and in trust of what God is bringing us to that have no problem being generous, have no problem begging for opportunities to give of their time and their talent and their treasure. But what does, or let me ask you a different way, does the cross of Jesus give you opportunity to beg for something? What do you catch yourself begging for? All creation begs. We all beg. What are you begging for? How does the cross inform that? How do you see Jesus? How do you see the fact that he impoverished himself when he was total wealth to take us, who we were total trash, and make us filthy rich? That's what the gospel says. That's why the Macedonian church gave what they gave. That's why they did what they did. That's why we're supposed to do what we do. It's not, it's not because... And I know, I know the, the impulse in everybody. Anytime a pastor gives a sermon like this, I know inside everyone's minds, they're thinking, okay, Luke, I get it. Gosh, ease up. We'll give more money. I know I've slacked off a little bit, you know, but we'll pick it up. We get the picture. I know there's that impulse. I know I'll sign up for that thing for crying out loud. Man, he pulled out the big guns. He's all preaching on it. All you had to do was call. And I know that's some of the impulse that you have. I don't want you to do anything to see what God will do for you or how happy God will be with you. I want you to do things because of what God has already done for you. Let your activity in any dimension be fueled by the beauty and the grace of what God has done for mankind to correct the sin in all of his cosmos, his beautiful creation. Let that be the thing. It's easy to walk out of any sermon, regardless of how it was preached, and think, what must I do now? I need you to walk out of here asking yourself, look what God has done, now what must I do in response to that? Not what you must do, but what has God done? If benevolence doesn't just well up in you whenever you look at the cross, then the gospel's just not clear to you yet, friend. There's, some, there's a fly in the ointment. There's a crack somewhere. If benevolence just doesn't... I mean, if you just don't find yourself looking for opportunities to sow and sow big and be grandiose about it, jaw-dropping, if you don't well up in that, there's some part of the gospel that you don't believe. It's not secure enough for you. It's not comfortable enough for you. God's not glorious enough for you. Jesus' identity isn't good enough for you. The joy of God's salvation isn't enough for you. And then you start listening to the idols, telling you that they'll deliver what you really want. Let me ask you, go ahead and stand up with me as I ask you some questions. And I guess the, the team can come back. That's my cue, sorry. Let me ask you, where does God's gospel convince you to be generous in your poverty and affliction. Where does God's gospel convince you most? Or where does it fail to convince you? Right? You think about it. Think about what God did. Just reflect as we worship, as the songs come up. And listen, people will be going back. And in the back, what we have is we have juice because we're on a school property. We have bread. You could take communion, take it with your family, take it with your missional community, take it with your roommates. And as you take it, I want you to reflect on the generosity of God through the cross, through the empty grave. And then I want you to look at your own generosity. How does it look? 
How does it look? Where do you find yourself trying to get God to manage what you own? That's hard for me, man. Listen, this was a hard sermon for me to preach to myself this week, straight up. And difficult. And listen, some of you are here and you are very far from Christ. And some of this is, may, might be lost on you. But what I hope you've seen in the texts and the passages is that God is a great servant. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. Right? He came to wash feet. He came to hug lepers. He, he came as a servant. And why did he do that? So that we could know and we could have communion with the greatest helper of all mankind. Right? I hope you've seen that God is kingly. That he creates beautiful order out of chaos. Think about it. If you read Genesis, this is what he says. You hear words like the deep, chaotic, dark, formless, void. Isn't that the language you see? What does he do? He speaks order into it. He groups water together. He collects land together. Seed according to its own kind. That's administrative. God is a king. He's kingly thinking. And he doesn't just do that. But he looks at the disorder. I mean, once sin came in, everything, the cosmos starts spinning out of control, right? Everything, entropy happens. Everything starts coming undone. We start coming undone. But we have a better king creating a better kingdom right now for a people where there will be no disorder, no chaos, no entropy. He's a good king. He's a good servant. He's a good king. Do you see? He's a great contributor. Christ is a great contributor because he contributed himself. He impoverished himself when he had known deep wealth in the Trinity of God. Steps into mankind, into our filth, and our grime, our scandal. He steps in and we abuse him at our hands as he lifts us up and makes us wealthy. Think of that. Think of how generous he is. Some of you, you really need to pray over where your heart has grown as you've listened to the idols and you've forgotten the gospel. And some of you need to meet Christ today.